This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 241 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Rick Howard has enjoyed a distinguished career in cybersecurity, including time in the U.S. Army and as Chief Security Officer at Palo Alto Networks. These days, I'm proud to call Rick my colleague at the CyberWire, where he serves as our Chief Security Officer and Chief Analyst. Rick Howard is also creator of the podcast series CSO Perspectives, where he explores the wide spectrum of issues facing chief security officers. In an early season of that show, Rick focuses on the notion of first principles, the foundational notions on which our fundamental security ideas and beliefs rest. Rick Howard joins us this week for an overview of first principles, what it means, how to implement it, and how to convince the powers that be in your organization that it's the right thing to do. Stay with us. Well, I'm an old military guy. I spent 23 years in the service in the U.S. Army. I did, uh, I was a Signal Corps guy. That means communications. That eventually led to networks and eventually into security. Um, my last job in the military was I was the commander of the Army Computer Emergency Response Team. So that meant I coordinated offensive and defensive operations uh, for the U.S. Army. Right? So that got me into security. Uh, and then when I retired, um, I spent another 10, 15 years doing commercial cybersecurity for both you know, regular commercial companies and security vendors. So I've been doing this a long time. And now, uh, happy to say, you're my colleague at the CyberWire, <laughs> and uh, one of the, the focuses that, that you've uh, been at uh, with your podcast, CSO Perspectives, is this notion of first principles, and I thought uh, that that's a worthy thing to share with our audience here. Uh, let's start with some uh, ground-level stuff here. Where did this notion of first principles come from? Well, like I said, you know, I've been doing this stuff for a long time in, you know, over 30 years of cybersecurity. And you may have noticed, Dave, uh, we're not getting any better at it, okay? It looks like hmm. things happen still uh, even more frequently than happened when I first started this. And it occurred to me that maybe we should stop for a second and rethink how we're doing this. You know, what I've noticed in my career is that we keep incrementally trying to improve things and better policies, better tech, Right, but we never really stop to say, are we going in the right direction in the first place? And mm -hmm. I was motivated by a couple of things, right? One is a famous mathematician, uh, Bertrand Russell, back in the early 1900s. Uh, they realized that the rules that all the mathematicians were using uh, weren't very consistent. You could come up with two different, completely different answers uh, using legitimate math rules. Uh, and they, so if we're trying to build precision engineering things, uh, maybe that wasn't going to work in the future. So they decided to start from the ground up and rebuild math from the ground up. And one of my favorite stories there is it took them like 80 pages to prove that one plus one equals two, right? And, and <laughs> in, in, the, in a famous footnote, he, they say, uh, uh, this might turn out to be useful. Okay, so who, who said <laughs> that math? I, Russell <laughs> was quite a character, right? I mean, he was yeah. the, wasn't he the, the orbiting teapot guy? Yeah, yeah, you know, he had lots of, he was colorful. <laughs> I like the way he said yeah. it. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but it turns out that the scientific community has talked about first principles, you know, from the very first. You know, Aristotle talked about it. Descartes talked about it. Um, and I was reading a, bi- a biography of uh, Elon Musk, and regardless of what you think about the guy, he makes big, giant things, you know, spaceships and electric cars and solar panels and batteries and, you know, and so – you listen to anything that he's written or talked about, he is a huge believer in these things called first principles. And what it means is if you're trying to build a spaceship to the moon or to Mars, you don't take what, you know, Boeing did when they built the Apollo program and, you know, take the next step. You take everything off the table and say, what is the essence of the thing that we're trying to do and figure out what that is and then build from there, you know, layer by layer, brick by brick. So the question then is, what's the first principle for cybersecurity professionals? You know, Hmm. I think there'd be some disagreement about that. You could put a bunch of us into a room. We would all have some uh, different idea uh, about what what is the absolute first principle thing in cybersecurity. So I've been Hmm. thinking about this for, geez, five years. And I come up with what I think is the first principle in, in, uh, of cybersecurity. And uh, that's what the CSO Perspectives podcast has mostly been about. Well, I mean, let us have it. What, what in your estimation, is that foundational <laughs> first principle? Well, I think uh, one of the pr- issues that all of us have is that we, uh, in the, my early days, we were trying to stop all cyber attacks, and we've realized over 30 years that that's not true. All right, so let's have a better statement. All right, so here it is. I'm trying to reduce the probability of material impact due to a cyber event to my organization. If you think about that, you know, whatever state you're InfoSec program is in, okay, there's some probability that you could probably calculate about whether or not you're likely to get hit by ransomware or by some nation state activity, okay? And then if you could calculate that number and go to your boss and say, hey, boss, this is what it is. Let's say it's 30%. There's a 30% chance that we're going to be materially impacted by ransomware in the next, say, three years. And then the boss could say, hey, I'm okay with 30%. That's a pretty low risk compared to these other risks I have, like, you know, trying to meet payroll and trying to get a product out the door. Or uh, he or she could say, you know, oh, my God, 30%, that sounds really scary. What can you do for me to reduce that to some more manageable number? And then as a security professional, we could say, well, there's lots of things we can do in terms of people, process, and technology to reduce that number. So let me get to work on that. So the question then is, if you're buying any of that, what are the very next steps for, you know, preventing material impact? And I guess the uh, thing we need to uh, define, uh, David, is uh, what's material, mm. you know, mm-hmm. because material is the thing I, I keep coming back to. You know, I've, I've worked in all kinds of size of organizations from the Army to a big uh, Silicon Valley uh, vendor to a small startup here at the CyberWire. What's material to the CyberWire is not what's material to the U.S. Army or to my last employer, right? And so mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. very important to be able to understand what that is. So once you can figure that out, then you, you can have some steps to take forward to, to improve your situation. Well, before we, we dive into to some of the, the next steps, I, how important is it that the way that you frame that notion, that you say reduce risk rather than eliminate risk because I think it would be a lot of people's impulse to say our mission statement as the cybersecurity team is we're going to eliminate any 
danger that comes at our organization. And I understand that impulse. But Yeah, I used to be that is, guy. Is, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> is, is it important that we, that we have that distinction? Yeah, I think it absolutely is because it puts what we do day to day into a realistic box. You know, in my younger, younger days, you know, whenever the new thing would happen, we'd run around with our hair on fire screaming to the world, you know, that the wolf was at the door. And if we didn't do something right now, the world would come to an end. Right. Well, I think we've noticed after years of watching breach uh, reactions and incident response, you know, that most of these companies survive breaches. Right. They may be painful, but uh, some of them may be extremely painful, but most of the companies survive. So maybe we should pay attention to what really is significant to the company and not worry about the little stuff. Right. And, and you know, maybe get some sleep at night. <laughs> so then what are the next steps when if we if we. If we're on board with this as our first principle, then where does that take us? Well, there's a couple of main ones I, that we think about. And, and there's really two big approaches to protecting any kind of organization in cyberspace. There are passive things that you can do, meaning it has no relation to what the bad guys are doing. It's basically locking the doors and the windows to make sure it's not easy for the bad guys to come in. Uh, a lot of people refer to that as uh, reducing the attack surface. Um, what the strategy that I talk about all the time uh, within that regard is zero trust. Zero hmm. trust is an idea that's been around for 20 years, okay, under different names. John Kindervog wrote the white paper that kind of solidified the ideas about it, right? And it's basically saying that instead of once you get inside the organization's network and have access to everything there, that uh, security professionals and IT professionals should limit access to resources to only the things that the employee needs, right, and nothing else, and be brutal about that, right? And so that really tightens the ship down, locks all the portholes together, makes sure if there's any leaking coming in, it'll be a minimal damage. So that is the first step. The first strategy is a zero-trust strategy. And Before we move on, though, I, I, I think... To me, zero trust is one of those terms that, I don't know, maybe I'm being uncharitable here, but it's it's fallen under the realm of so many marketers that I think when people <laughs> hear it, they roll their eyes. Is that is it unfair? Is it premature for folks to roll their eyes when we're talking about zero trust? Well, I think that's typical of all security professionals. You know, uh, some new idea happens and then we all love it. And then after time, we all hate it. Okay, because it's not perfect. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. And, you know, and what happens is the security vendor community gets a hold of these things and, and claims that all of their products, you know, can do zero trust. Buy my product and turn me on and you have zero trust. And that's right. not what we're talking about here at all. Okay. Mm. Zero trust is a, is a theory. It's a thought process. It's a position statement that says we're going to do everything we can to limit access to our critical resources to only the people that need it, right? And so what that means is the marketing department shouldn't have access to the M&A database, you know, let's say that, okay? Or, or you know, the developer shouldn't have access to the payroll system, you know, unless they're working on the payroll system. I mean, these are just common sense things, right? right? Uh, but like I said, it is a way of life. And what I think people stumble on when we talk about zero trust is we have to go spend gazillions of dollars uh, to start working on this thing. And that's not true at all, okay? You can start zero trust programs with whatever you have in your security stack. 
Okay, it may not be fun and it may not be efficient, but you don't have to go out and buy a whole new thing. You just have to start deciding that you're going to limit access to the resources that are important. And one of the, the things I've heard folks say about Zero Trust is that um, it is for more mature organizations, that it is not a beginner's thing to try to take on. Is that is that accurate in your estimation? No, I don't think so at all. Like I said, it's a mindset. Even here at the CyberWire, you know, we, we have a handful of employees. Now, right. our Zero Trust uh, philosophy here is not a whole bunch of equipment and technology. It's basically saying the CEO needs access to this. But, you know, Rick doesn't need access to that database, right? So let's just be smart about those kinds of things. Like, uh, and, and that has done us very well, by the way. You know, we, uh, we can be pretty protected because our zero trust posture for a really small organization is pretty good. Hmm. All right. So beyond zero trust, what else? Well, uh, zero trust is kind of a passive defense. Like I said, it's, lot, you know, closing the doors and the windows. But one of my pet peeves over the years is um, the security vendor community, the security community, the security intelligence community even. We try to focus on the technical things that the bad guys are doing. You know, we're worried about this piece of malware or this uh, zero-day exploit, right? And, and we try to protect our environments from those things, okay? But it has no relation to what the bad guys are actually doing. Right? And our focus shouldn't be on preventing one-off technical things. Right? Our, our focus should be on preventing success of those adversary groups trying to do us harm. You know, and it turns out there's not that many of them. Okay? If you just go to the MITRE attack framework, you know, they're tracking all the uh, nation-state groups that various people have been watching over the years. There's about 150 in that, in that database, right? Hmm. And so if you add uh, cybercrime to it, I've been watching cybercrime groups for the past five years. There's another hundred groups that are unique, right, that do cybercrime. It's only 250 groups. And we know uh, over the years, if you're a follower of any of the intrusion kill chain models, like the Lockheed Martin model or the MITRE attack framework or even the Diamond model, that adversaries have to follow a sequence of uh, instructions or rules or things they have to get done in order to be successful. And it usually ranges from about 30 of them to 400 of them, depending on how complicated it is. And if you just look at the MITRE attack framework, we know what all those things are tied to a group. So if you're trying to stop, you know, Fancy Bear from getting into your network, you would just look and say, well, you know, for delivery, Fancy Bear does X, Y, and Z. For uh, command and control, they do A, B, and C. And why don't I put controls for all of those things so I can be fairly confident that I can stop Fancy Bear from getting into my, um, my network, right? And so uh, I call that strategy intrusion kill chain strategy, right, where we're going to try to put prevention controls not just for technical things that bad guys use in general, but specifically design prevention controls for known adversary groups. And there's not that many, and it's not that hard. Okay? But, and I thought we would have gotten there by now, but uh, we've been thinking about kill chains for, geez, at least a decade, and we are still not quite there as an industry. But those adversaries aren't static. I mean, they're they're no. evolving their techniques along the way as well. So there's, you know, you, the, the defenders must do the same. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the benefit of if let's just say I put 100 prevention controls in place for my security stack, whatever that is, for Fancy Bear. Okay. Right. Um, 
And Fancy Bear says, oh my God, they've stopped us. I need to come up with something. And they're not gonna change all 100 steps because it's too hard. There's lots, that's a lot of work. They're gonna change X piece of it on some part of the intrusion kill chain. So, okay, let's say they come up with something that gets past all our defenses. Well, the other 99 things you had in place will prevent them from being successful, right? So the trick here is to get out in front of them, okay? So that, that it takes them a lot of work to in order to create another campaign that we know nothing of. That's a lot of resources. And uh, that's, what, that's why the intrusion kill chain philosophy or strategy is a, is a better way to think about it as opposed to let's stop all the malware trying to get into your network. It strikes me that that uh, some of what you're proposing here is kind of um, starting from the ground up, ass- making no assumptions, getting rid of all your preconceived yep. notions. Um, and to that, I think a lot of folks would say, uh, Rick, this battleship doesn't turn on a dime. <laughs> so how do I go down this path while I've still got my business to run here, is this, do we start off this as a, a side experimental project? How, what do you recommend there? I think it's just a restructuring of how to think about it, okay? Because hmm. you still have your security tools that you already have in place. You probably have adopted some sort of methodology to prevent malware, to prevent phishing, to, uh, you know, all those kinds of things that we talk about all over the, all over the place. But when you reframe it in terms of first principles, then you can see the gaps in what you have. I'm not suggesting that we throw everything out and start from scratch, not at all. I'm saying, Mm -hmm. here's the things you have. We've done some things, uh, but if you look at it through the lens of uh, intrusion kill chain prevention or zero trust, you can say, oh, I can see why they can get in. Let me close that gap, all right? And that makes much more sense to me. You know, you've been out and about um, talking about this notion for a while now. When you get when you get pushback, what what do the people say who aren't on board? Well, most people. Uh, it's funny when I have these conversations, and you're right. I have been talking about this for a long time. Okay, everybody comes up to me and says that's a fantastic idea. We should do that, right? Uh, but then reality hits, right? And you know, real world situations happen, and other priorities happen. It's tough, like you said, to change the direction of the battleship. Mm. Um, and this is not something that the InfoSec team can do on their own. Okay, They have to get buy-in from the senior leadership all right, so that when things, when things have to change, uh, they don't get a lot of pushback from the leadership team. All right? So uh, that's what I run into when I talk about this in the field. How do you make that case to the C-suite that this is a direction you want to head? What, what message do you walk into the boardroom with? It's a great question, and it comes to a third plank in our first principle strategies, being able to forecast risk for your organizations. This is, out of all the things that we do as cybersecurity professionals, forecasting risk is something we are really, really bad at. Um, and and I and I've been this one of these people before. You know, typically what we would do to forecast risk is put all the bad things on a spreadsheet. You know, and you, you list them from you know A to Z, right? And on the x-axis is how impactful those things would be, and on the uh, or on the x yeah, and on the y-axis is uh, how likely is it to happen? And what happens is you get these they're called heat charts. 
all right? The, and, if, and if you're good at a spreadsheet, you can color code them. The really high and impactful ones get red, and the middle kinds get yellow, and the other kinds get green. And so in the old days, I would go into a board meeting and circle the red things and said, this is really scary. Give me money, all right? And I will protect against that. And it turns out that, you know, risk matrices like that, okay, heat maps, they're bad science, okay? There's not just one or two papers that say it. There's boatloads of papers that say that's a bad way to forecast risk, hmm. all right? And so we had to kind of rethink about how to do this. And, you know, and my peers, and I'm one of them, you know, probability and stats was not our strongest, you know, subject. <laughs> right? Right. We, we see probabilities and trying to count urns coming, or marbles coming out of urns, and we run the other way. I know I did, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, but when you look at problems like this, okay, these are huge, massive problems or risk calculations that we don't have any data for. Right. And and then CISOs kind of roll their hands up and say, you know what, we can't solve this problem. There's no data that we can look to count marbles coming out of urns. Turns out that probability, okay, is not that at all. Okay. Probability, you know, counting marbles out of urns is a really small percentage of what probability is. What you can do is make assessments, right? And say, you know, let me bring everybody into my room. Okay, all my security people. We have three security people on our staff here at CyberWire. Okay, we've done this number of times since I've been here. And I ask them, what's the probability that we'll be materially impact with our current setup? And we come to an agreement that say, you know, we think it's uh, 15%. And then we go back and forth. And, you know, this is just security experts in the room making the assessment. And then are there the next ever, qu- Are there hot debates that happen sometimes? Oh, Absolutely. Is- Absolutely. Yeah. You know, nobody's in agreement, especially security people. Are you kidding me? All right. All right. <laughs> right. All right. <laughs> but we come to an agreement with a plus or minus cert- uncertainty factor, right? Uh, we agree that it's 15%, maybe plus or minus five, right? And so we can live with that, right? As, as standing on it, we can go to the board and say, this is what we think it is for this organization. The really interesting thing is what happens after. You know, the question to our team is, what would, what would have to happen for your number to significantly go up? What are the indicators that you're going to use to move that number up or down, right? And that's where the conversations start to get interesting. And what's hmm. great about that discussion is this is an implementation in the real world for Bayes' theorem, okay? Is a, you know, the idea that we can take, make an initial assessment and then take on new evidence to raise our number up or down, depending on how, you know, what the evidence is. There's a great book called Super Forecasting by Dr. Tetlock. Have you, have you seen it, Dave? Have you read it? No, not, I don't know that one. Mm-mm. So Dr. Tetlock was a DARPA researcher, right? And he was watching CNN in the early 2000s, you know, and, he, and they bring the pundits in and they're pontificating on things that are going to happen in the world. And this one guy they kept bringing on got something right once in his career, but he knew for a fact that he was wrong ever since. Every time he tried to predict something, he got it wrong. And he thought that, geez, you know, there should be a Chiron on the CNN you know, screen that says, this guy is one for 10 in predictions in 2021, <laughs> right? <laughs> so he decides, he decides to do a research project, okay, that he brought in uh, members of the academic community, uh, the intelligence community, and a group he called the Soccer Moms. Uh, they weren't really soccer moms. They were just kind of older people that had time to solve puzzles. And he gave them 500 
really difficult problems to forecast. Like, what is the probability that President Putin will be assassinated in three years, right? And hmm. make a prediction, right? And they ran it for five years. And guess what group won? I may, I may have uh, buried the lead here. But the, the, the soccer moms I'm going to go won. with the non-experts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they won. And there are lots of reasons for it. Uh, but mostly they weren't – they didn't have a dog in the fight. They didn't care how it turned out. They were just looking at the evidence, right? Oh, their paycheck wasn't on the line. Yeah, right? And so yeah. – but it turns out that some of that group inside the soccer man's groups were really good at this, and they uh, Tetlock labeled them super forecasters, right? And so these are trying to forecast risk on really difficult problems with no data, right? And I am suggesting that we can do that uh, in the cybersecurity space, right? And so that would be the third uh, pillar of my first principle program. So that's a long way around the horn. I want to ask your, answer your question. Yeah. I would take my forecast into the board and say, there's a 30% chance that you guys are going to get materially impacted by some cyber event in the next three years. Is that okay? All right? And when they say it's not okay, then we can have the discussion about how to better our zero trust program, our intrusion kill chain prevention program, and things like that. Putting the options in front of them and yeah. say... This is, you know, we, we have because we have a limited amount of time and, and money and, and all those things, we got to make choices. We have to make and choices. Here are the options. And you, by the way, those guys get paid money to do that. They make risk decisions all the time, right? Uh, one of our great failures in the security profession is early on, we insisted that cybersecurity was somehow different than all the other risks that are out there. And it's just not true, right? It's just not. Cyber mm -hmm. risk is just risk to the business. And uh, we deal with it a little bit differently than we might do payroll or, you know, supply chain or whatever, all, anything that the boss is worried about. It's still just risk. And business leaders understand that. Our thanks to my CyberWire colleague, Rick Howard, for joining us. You can learn more about his CSO Perspectives podcast on the CyberWire website. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Music.